Um, so I attended this funeral and participated in, in it while working on studying the text of scripture we're going to look at this morning. I was given the task of speaking at the funeral and doing the closing prayer at the graveside for the committal service, in essence, committing my friend's his body to the ground until the day of resurrection. And throughout the weekend, my sermon text and my study in it came to mind so often to give me encouragement and hope. This text shaped and influenced my mindset very precisely over the past weekend. You know, I've, I've been told that whenever I preach, I tend to pick the most bizarre passages and topics of the Bible. I don't know if that's an encouragement or a criticism. I sought out this morning's passage because it has a lot of those elements that I find to be confusing and challenging, yet very important theologically. But you start to grapple with the text of Scripture, thinking that it's merely theological or intellectually stimulating, and the Spirit of God will use His Word to instill comfort and hope in you and point you to Jesus Christ. So this study became the lens through which I viewed the tragedy of my friend's death. So I offer that as a testimony of the living and active nature of God's word. I'd like you to consider a preliminary question this morning. What is your theological hang-up? What is your hang-up in the Bible? What is it in the Bible or Christian theology that you get stuck on mentally and emotionally? What is that point or various points in theology that you can't seem to handle? That you say, everyone must believe in this thing the way I believe in it, or it makes me uncomfortable, or the reverse. You find yourself as the one who says, everyone believes this idea, this doctrine, but I think I believe the opposite, and I'm stuck on it. Maybe it's a question of doctrine or scripture, that no matter how much you think about it, you talk about it, you try to resolve it, you're just stuck on it, and you can't move past it. What is that thing that you read in the Bible and you say, man, I could just never accept that? I'll give you a few examples, one humorous and a couple serious. My friend Ryan, the one who passed away, was known for his many hang-ups about various things in Christian tradition. One hang-up he always talked about every year was Christmas. He would say, why do we give each other presents on the occasion that we celebrate Jesus' birth? And he would go on to systematically argue that people were wrong for how they celebrate Christmas. I probably heard that speech from him 20 times in the years that I knew him. Let me give you another example. The sovereignty of God. Many of you in this church have come to accept the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, or the theology known as Calvinism, which is simply a code word for God is in control of salvation. And I know that for some of you, one of your hang-ups, at least for a little while, was something to the effect of, of this. If God chooses who will be saved, then what hope might there be for my unsaved loved one or spouse? How is that fair? That's a hang-up. You struggle through that. Some of you still struggle with that. Another example, financial giving. I knew a brother who used to attend this church years ago. Let's call him Jack, not his real name. And financial giving was his big hang-up. Perhaps he had had some bad experiences in previous churches, and he projected that onto Woodside. So the thing he liked to talk about all the time was about tithing. Oh, why do Christians believe in tithing? That was the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament now. And if you had any interaction with Jack, at some point he would try to debate you about tithing. He was hung up on it. He could never move past it. And I suspect that's why he could never find a church to call his home. So hopefully using those examples, you can more clearly ask yourself, what are your theological hangups? 
Would you turn with me to Matthew 22, and we're going to look at a group of religious leaders and their big theological hang-up. And we'll see what this text then has for us in the way that the Lord addresses that. Uh, by way of context, this interaction in Matthew 22, starting in verse 23, happens presumably after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem near the end of his earthly ministry. It's part of a series of interactions where Jesus is teaching through parables and certain representatives of elite religious groups are challenging him with questions and some debates. There's four arguments that are brought before Jesus in this section of Matthew. They ask him first, by what authority are you doing this? By what authority are you interrupting daily operations of the temple to drive people out? Next, they ask him, trying to entrap him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Next, they present to him the question about the resurrection to try to stump him. That's where we'll be. And finally, someone asks him, what is the greatest commandment? So this morning, that's what we're focusing on, the Sadducees and their hang-up, their theological question about the resurrection. Let me read for you, starting in Matthew 22, verse number 23, and we'll go through verse 33. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 828. The word of God says to us, The same day Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This text has all the intense and sometimes uncomfortable stuff that I'm told I always tend to preach about. It's got religious leaders, a foolish debate, multiple deaths, multiple marriages, infertility, leveret marriage. This is a tough text. So let's commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, I ask this morning that your word would go forth in the power of your spirit, despite the weakness of the human messenger. I pray that your word would have its reign and its work um, among your people this morning to draw us all closer to Jesus Christ. May we learn about him and his gospel and the resurrection that he gives to his people. Set aside the human messenger that Christ's name uh, might be great this morning. And I ask this in his name. Amen. So here's your five points, and they're in the bulletin for you, I believe. Point number one, the Sadducees. Point number two, the scenario. Point number three, the strength of God. Point number four, the scriptures. Point number five, the salvation of God. Sadducees, the scenario, the strength of God, the scriptures, and salvation. So point number one, the Sadducees. Verse 23 says, that same day, Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. So who were the Sadducees? They were an elite and powerful Jewish religious um, group. 
uh, a denomination, if you will. The Sadducees were the group uh, involved with the administration of the temple. You probably heard of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and a very oversimplified distinction of the two is this. The Sadducees were the wealthy elite, the Jewish religious aristocracy. The Pharisees were the denomination of the common people. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus explains that when Sadducees would get in positions of political power, they would behave like the Pharisees, because otherwise the common people would not tolerate them. Other distinctions. The Sadducees only accepted the scriptural authority of the books of Moses, the law, the first five books of the Bible. The Sadducees did not accept the supernatural. In Acts 23, when Paul had to testify before a council of religious leaders in Jerusalem, consisting of Pharisees and Sadducees, Luke writes in Acts 23, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Matthew tells us in this passage that the Sadducees are the ones who say there is no resurrection. And let me quote from the historian Josephus for a little more insight. He writes, the doctrine of the Sadducees is this, that souls die with the bodies, nor do they regard the observation of anything besides what the law enjoins to them. For they think it an instance of virtue to dispute with those teachers of philosophy whom they frequent, but this doctrine is received by but a few, yet by those of the greatest, of the greatest dignity. So this Jewish historian of the first century says the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Their scriptural obligation is only the law of Moses. They like to debate their religious minority, and they are thought of as very elite and dignified. Point number two, the scenario. So the Sadducees come to Jesus, verse 23, on that same day. On what same day? Well, the same day that the Pharisees have tried to trap him by asking him about paying taxes to Caesar. See, in these interactions with the religious leaders, they're not coming to him with the best of intentions. They're trying to entrap him. They're trying to embroil him in controversy. Um, the Sadducees have this theological hang-up with the resurrection, and they're going to pose a scenario to undermine what Jesus has been teaching about the resurrection. So this is their question. Verse 24, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh, after them all, the woman died in the resurrection, therefore of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. The Sadducees start their question with an Old Testament principle that they both accept. They accept the law of Moses and Jesus accepts the law of Moses. So they come up, um, they apply it to this hypothetical example. Let's say there were seven brothers who were lawfully married to the same woman, each in succession. And then they ask the question of the debate, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Well, let's start to break this question down. The principle here is called leveret marriage. I spoke on it when I preached on the story of Judah and Tamar a couple months ago. But to remind you, the word comes from the Latin lever, which means brother-in-law. So simply marriage to one's brother-in-law. 
You must understand that to, to the people of the ancient world, to die without children, to not have your name passed on in the next generation was unthinkable for them. So this was their practice to mitigate that tragedy. This practice was codified in the Law of Moses when the children of Israel come into the Promised Land. It's in Deuteronomy 25. It would have been a great shame for someone to refuse this duty in their family. It would have been considered a high and lamentable selfishness, worthy of public humiliation. So that's the premise for their question. And they're going to apply it and exemplify it here. They tell this hypothetical story. I don't think it's a real story. I think it's just a hypothetical example they've made up. It's about seven brothers. They were each married to the same woman, one after the other, in succession, because of their obligation to obey Deuteronomy 25. I want you to notice the emotion and the suffering implied in this hypothetical story. Either this hypothetical woman is, is barren, or the men of the story are infertile, or the death of each of them is so egregiously untimely that none of their marriages result in children. Finally, the woman herself dies. So eight people in the story have died. If it were true, imagine the repeated heartbreak of not being able to become pregnant, compounded by being widowed seven times. What a miserable life they've created for this character in the story, only to get to the punchline, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Now, when you hear a story like that, you would expect that the question is going to be something like, why is there suffering in the world? Or how can the surviving family have hope in their lives? Or this woman did everything according to the Bible, but things still turned out badly for her. Why? What can we say to her family? Or Moses gave us a provision so that a man's name is passed on if he dies childless. But what do we do if that doesn't work? Jesus, what do we do to navigate this sin-cursed and broken world? Those are the kinds of questions that would be appropriate. But the Sadducees have no genuine concern in this matter. They have no desire to become better followers of God or better lovers of their fellow man. Their only purpose of this whole thing is to have a debate, to challenge Jesus, to prove him wrong. They have a theological hang-up. They have an axe to grind, so to speak. And the text has already told us that they deny that there is a resurrection. So they're not coming to Jesus to clarify some honest confusion about the matter. They're there to debate with him. I think they expect this to play out in one of two ways. Either they expect that they will stump Jesus and he won't have an answer for them, or they expect that he will have an answer which they will then say is not correct. See, if they ask whose wife the woman becomes in the resurrection, and Jesus says, I don't know, I'm not sure, I never thought about that, we'll have to wait and find out, they could make him look bad in the, in the public's eye. Like, see, this great prophet that you all follow and claim he's from God and doing all these miracles can't even answer a simple question. He claims there's going to be a resurrection, in fact, one that he claims he will be directly involved in, and yet he can't even answer this simple question. Or, on the other hand, if Jesus answers the question within the various options of this story, they can undermine and challenge the answer. Perhaps they expect that he'll say the first one is going to be her husband in the resurrection since it was the original marriage. Maybe it would be the fourth one because it's the middle of all the marriages. Maybe it's the seventh because it was the most recent and seven is the number of perfection. Perhaps it would be the, the one she was married to the longest or whatever. No matter what Jesus says out of those options, um, any answer he gives, they can just say, well, how do you know? Where does Moses say that? 
How, how can you pick one with certainty since all seven were married to her? How is that fair? I want you to realize something. The Sadducees are presenting a foolish debate. Their scenario is foolish because they're conflating two separate points of theology into one. They're conflating the principle of leveret marriage and the teaching of the resurrection as though one abrogates the, the other. They're relying on an incorrect assumption. See, they incorrectly assume that those who believe in the resurrection necessarily believe that human institutions will continue in their earthly manner after an, in the resurrected state, namely marriage. And it's not just marriage. I think parentage is somewhat in view as well. Because in the story, none of the seven marriages result in children. And that's part of the argument of the Sadducees. In Luke's account of this story, he emphasizes that aspect. He says in Luke 20, verse 30, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children, and they died. That detail may be important to note because I think they're making childlessness part of the confusion as well. The implication being if she had children with one of them, perhaps that would be the, the one she's married to in the resurrection. But it gets confusing since there's no children. Let me offer you some application at this point. You know, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask questions of the scripture. It's okay to ask questions of the Lord. But do so with the heart to receive and to understand his word. Don't approach the Lord and his word with the preconceived agenda to disprove and disparage what you don't like that his word says. Don't come to the Lord with an ax to grind. Don't come to the Lord's word with a hard and fast commitment to your hangups as the Sadducees do. Second application. It's okay to question things. It's even healthy to debate. When we debate, one benefit is that our knowledge of our beliefs can get clearer and stronger. However, when you're debating, when you're evangelizing, when you're correcting the theology of a fellow believer in any serious or meaningful manner, then you must understand the position of the person you're speaking to with some integrity. Know the position of your opponent, because you might be debating against something that they don't even believe. That was a mistake of the Sadducees. They wanted to debate Jesus on the resurrection, but they didn't really even understand what Jesus believed and taught about the resurrection. What causes foolish debates? What causes relentless theological hangups? Where do they come from? I don't think all hangups are legitimately or purely intellectual in nature. It's not that our hangups only come from a lack of knowledge of God's word. There's plenty of people who have plenty of knowledge and information that still get hung up on things, that still have foolish debates, that still question God's word in a sinister and faithless manner. Where does that come from? I want to suggest a couple possibilities. First, hang-ups with God's word are sometimes moral in nature. Here's what I mean. Sometimes someone wants to live in a certain way in disobedience to God's word, and their hearts will assuage their guilt and resolve their tension by creating all kinds of doubts in their minds. There's lots of people I went to Bible college with who used to be formally convinced of God's word who no longer now affirm the Christian faith. And I've talked to a large handful of them and underlying every story of how they lost their faith, it's almost always something like this. 
They wanted to do something, live a certain way that was opposed to God's word, whether date a non-believer or live with their girlfriend or boyfriend or cheat on their spouse. And then the confusions began in their minds. The doubts began. Well, I'm not sure what I believe anymore. I'm not sure that you can know for sure. They got hung up on their doubts with God's word that they themselves created. Our intellectual hang-ups are sometimes moral in nature. Let me give you uh, another example. Sometimes it's personal pain and hurt that leads to our theological hang-ups. You've been hurt by a believer or by a church, and you just can't get over it. You start to doubt and question God's word as a result. It could be insecurity that other people have created in our lives that causes us to get hung up on something and struggle to accept what God's word says. I'll give you an illustration from my life. It was 2012, and our church was going through a pastoral search. And I'd shared with um, a fellow older believer that our search committee and our church had expected me to preach until we hired a pastor. And my older friend, who I told this to, said, oh, you can't do that. You're not married. You can't function in that capacity. Now, I know what God's word says about that. But can I tell you the insecurity and self-consciousness and theological hang-ups that caused for me. That stuck with me for a couple years. I couldn't get past it. It was like every time we had a class on leadership or ministry in our Sunday school or in an informal setting, that's a question I would always present to Pastor Matt. If we were in First Timothy, I'd always bring it up like, oh, it says you must be the husband of one wife. I guess I don't qualify. I probably said that to Pastor five or ten times in the years that we've known each other. Why, where does that come from? Why this unwillingness to believe what God's word plainly says? Where does that come from? It's not for lack of information, it's not for lack of knowledge, but God's word says one thing and someone else has told us another. And despite the clarity of God's word, we get hung up on it, we can't move on from it. Sometimes it's your religious tradition and upbringing in incorrect theology, as it was for the Sadducees, they were raised to not believe uh, what the common Jews had believed. So they get hung up on the issue of the resurrection. Point number three, the strength of God. I'd like to start looking at the Lord's answer to the Sadducees. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The Lord tells them plainly, you are wrong. I love that. In our culture, the most offensive thing someone can tell another person is that they are wrong. We don't like to do that. We skirt around the truth. We shy away from it. We ignore opportunities that we have to speak the truth. Sometimes someone asks us a question about the Lord, and we, we say, well, uh, I'm not sure, when we know that there is a clear answer in God's word. But the best and most merciful thing you could do for others is to give them the truth, which is what the Lord does for the Sadducees. So I told you earlier that the Sadducees have conflated these two issues, marriage, or elaborate marriage, and the resurrection. And the Lord will separate them and answer them individually. He tells them that they are wrong because they don't know the scriptures or the power of God. So we'll handle those in reverse order. First, we'll handle the power of God or the strength of God, as it's in your outline. And Jesus will first address the incorrect assumption. The assumption of the Sadducees was that human institutions, namely marriage and even parentage, would continue in the resurrection if there was such a thing as a resurrection. 
Here's what Jesus says in verse 30. In the resurrection, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. I want you to know that Jesus is not teaching that we become angels when we die. I'm not sure how that idea evolved. You see that sometimes in movies or in cartoons. You hear that mistaken concept at funerals sometimes, like your deceased loved one is up in heaven watching over you like a guardian angel. That's not true. You should not believe that. That's not in scripture. Jesus is saying that in the resurrected state, and in the last point, we're gonna talk about what that is, what the resurrected state is, He's saying that in that, human marriage will not exist. And he uses angels as an analogy, um, not because we actually become angels, but because angels will not marry. They don't take spouses, they don't have baby showers, they don't have weddings, angels don't procreate. See, marriage is the institution of God. It's created by God, but it has an end date. It will not be there in the resurrected state. Now, take a moment and let that blow your mind for a moment. I think the most newly married couple in our church might be Andy and Jen. They've been married for two years. The longest married couple in our church has been married for over 40 years. I believe that's Mrs. Charles and Mr. Charles. And I want you to think about that. When you get to the resurrected state at the end of days, you won't be a married couple. Let that settle on you for a moment. It feels depressing just to say that, right? The idea that you could get into a rhythm of life and love and have a mutual dependency on another person and raise kids together and share everything in life together. And one day in the resurrection, you will not be married anymore. That's what the text teaches. Two admonitions I can give you from this. First, why would God institute something so beautiful and intimate as marriage to not have its beauty and intimacy continue in the eternal state? I think it's because, as scripture teaches, the purpose and the benefit of marriage pertains to life here on earth. Some of the purposes of biblical marriage are sanctification, procreation, companionship. Those purposes pertain to this life, not the next, for there will be no need of sanctification from sin after the resurrection of the dead. There will be no more procreation then. And all believers will be in perfect communion with the Lord and one another then. So the purposes for which God gave marriage belong to this life. That's why Christian wedding vows rightly include the phrase, till death do us part. Second admonition. There's a lot of younger people now who devalue the institution of marriage. I've been one of those um, at certain times in my life, especially in our modern culture center like New York City, you see a lot of this, like people who say, I'm not getting married, I'm married to my work, or what is marriage? It's just a piece of paper. I'm sure you've heard that before. Um, you see, and you see that kind of attitude creep into the church, like, oh, marriage is earthly, not heavenly, so I'm just gonna focus on the Lord, not another man or a woman. That's wrong thinking. That's ancient Gnosticism, just repackaged to sound like it's Christian saying it's irrelevant or unimportant because it pertains to this life and not the eternal state. That's the perversion of what God has created and designed for the good of humanity in this world. Let me offer a third word of encouragement. Maybe for some of you, having to think about that, that you won't be married in the resurrection, that's a little sad. 
But for some people, and that's going to be shockingly good news. When the resurrection happens, you will not have a marital status. For some people, their struggle with singleness or feeling trapped in a bad marriage or having become jaded by the sins of a spouse or having encountered a divorce, this is good news. There was an author I was talking to last year as she was doing some research on African-American inventors. And she had reason to believe that one of the women she was researching was a member of our church in the 1800s. So we've been emailing back and forth and then we lost touch. And so I reached out to her last week and I said, hey, I haven't heard from you in a while. What, what happened to your research project? And she wrote back that her project was on hold because her marriage of over two decades had unexpectedly fell apart and her life had been in turmoil. What do you say to something like that? Some of you have experienced that kind of pain and heartache. I want you to know that when you walk into God's kingdom in the resurrection, you will not walk in there burdened and weighed down and defined by everything that plagued you in this life, including your marital status or lack thereof. So what does this have to do with the strength of God? Why is this called the strength of God? Why does Jesus say that they don't understand the power of God. Well, because the Sadducees introduce all this complexity of multiple marriages and childlessness into the scenario as though God would be confused by that, as though all earthly situations and messes and suffering and all possible relationships, whether good or bad, would be too confusing for there even to be a resurrection. Therefore, it must not be possible. This is how they don't understand the strength of God. God is big enough and strong enough and smart enough and sovereign enough to have the resurrection and to not get confused by everything that happened in this life. In college, we would pose these types of questions to our theology professor. You could have a little grace on us. We were only 18 or 19. But we would say stupid things like, when the resurrection happens and God raises the dead, what happens if you donated your organs to someone who's an unbeliever? Do you get your organs back from them? Do they die? Those are interesting speculations, but those are dumb questions because God is sovereign and he will figure it all out. It's not too complicated for him. Know the power of God. Point number four, the scriptures. The Lord said the Sadducees were wrong because they didn't know the scriptures. That's an intense statement because the Sadducees were an elite and powerful religious um, group most notably associated with the administration of the temple. So to tell them that they don't know the scriptures would be like telling a, a council of Catholic bishops that they don't understand the Bible. Now, the Sadducees don't affirm the authority of the books of the Bible beyond the law of Moses. So whatever Jesus says, they could probably answer, oh, we know the scriptures. You just have an extended version of the scriptures with books that we don't affirm. So you're getting your theories from things that Moses never taught. You're getting your information from Isaiah and Daniel and your own, and your own teaching. But we follow Moses. We follow the original word of God. But what Jesus does is so masterful. He speaks them out of the book of Exodus, the second book that Moses wrote. So he's giving them something they did affirm. Verse 31, Jesus says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Something you need to understand about what God reveals in the Bible is that it's progressive. 
in nature. So if you only had the first three chapters of Genesis, what do you know about salvation? Well, you would know from Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And then you get a little later in Genesis, and you find out God's going to work out his plan to save the world through the seed of Abraham. You get to the end of Genesis, and you find out that God is going to work through the tribe of Judah. You get to 2 Samuel, and you realize God's going to work through a descendant of King David, and on and on. God's revelation of himself and his work is progressive. It unfolds a little at a time. That's why it's illegitimate to make claims like, well, the, the, the law of Moses never mentions Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, so that's an afterthought. Or the Bible doesn't really talk about the heavenly kingdom until Isaiah, so that's just something that people made up and added later. No, it's one story unfolding a little at a time. Think about the way a, a little child, a one-year-old child, relates, relates to their father. Um, the child calls their father daddy. Then later, the child understands that they have two parents, a mother and father. And early on, the child begins to understand gender, that their dad is a man. When the child understands more of the world around them, they realize that their dad goes to work each day. Let's say he works in a garage. He's a mechanic. Then the child understands that the father also has family relationships, just like they do. That he's a son to the child's grandparents, he's an uncle to the child's cousin, he's um, a brother to the child's uncles and aunts. That's progressive revelation. Over time, the child comes to understand that the man in their lives was a daddy, a man, a mechanic, an uncle, a son, a brother. It's all the same person, and there's no contradiction in any of that. That's how biblical revelation works. The whole story is unfolded a little a little bit at a time. So it'd be wrong of saying, well, where is Jesus dying on the cross for our sins in the law of Moses? It's not there, but there's nothing in the law of Moses that contradicts it. And in fact, it's compatible and supports the doctrine of the resurrection. And that's the argument that Jesus is going to make. He makes that argument out of the grammatical tense of the scripture in Exodus 3. In Exodus 3, at the burning bush, God reveals himself to Moses. And he reveals himself as the God who is the God of a people, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He does so in the present, in the present tense. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say, Abraham used to worship me when he was alive. Or, I was the God that Isaac and Jacob served. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus, the greatest expositor of the scripture, picks up on that and says that's in present tense. The implication of that is that there is an afterlife. There is a resurrection. This is the perfect argument for the Sadducees because they don't believe that the soul or the immaterial part of man was kept alive and preserved by God for the day of resurrection. The law of Moses doesn't explicitly talk about something like going to heaven when you die or being raised up at the last day. But the Lord uses Exodus to show them that God is the God of the living. For if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead and no more, then why would God describe himself as being their God? Implication, they must be alive. There is a resurrection. Jesus in reality shows that the Sadducees are the ones who are at odds with the Bible. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard that, they were astonished at his teaching. Verse 33. Last point, the salvation of the Lord. What is the resurrection? The resurrection is the Christian doctrine that God is going to prepare for us a new body 
into which he will raise us up from death at the coming of Christ, at the end of days of the original creation, in which we will receive his coming kingdom. Christ is the inaugural partaker of the resurrection, having risen from death on the third day. Those who are in Christ will partake of the resurrection unto eternal life. Philippians 3 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. The resurrection is alluded to as early as the book of Genesis, for Joseph gave instruction to bring his bones from Egypt into the promised land. Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. The book of Hebrews, commenting on the story of Abraham in Genesis, says that Abraham believed that if he were to sacrifice his son Isaac, that God even would be able to raise him up. That's an allusion, allusion to the resurrection. Now, the doctrine of the resurrection is most clearly laid out for us in 1 Corinthians 15. When is the resurrection? The resurrection of Christ happened on the third day after he died. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The resurrection of those who are in Christ will not happen until Christ comes back. And then he will raise those who are the dead in Christ and those who are alive and remain. The resurrection has not happened yet. This is important because sometimes this gets a little confusing when people talk about it at funerals. I remember our brother, Joseph DeMacco, who passed away in 2015. At his funeral, we were thinking about the fact that he's no longer bound to the wheelchair. And I think someone said, oh, he's walking around the streets of gold now. No, that has not happened yet. I understand what, what people are saying. He's free from um, his earthly body, but the resurrection has not happened yet. This is important. When a believer dies, they're immediately in the presence of the Lord. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus tells the penitent thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Yet... The resurrection is something more than your immaterial soul being in the presence of God, shedding your body and being with God. The resurrection is something beyond that. Death separates the immaterial part of you from the fleshly part of you. The resurrection unites the immaterial part of you with a glorious body into which you can inherit the kingdom of God, for flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You need to be raised up in a new body before you get the inheritance that God has for you. The day I got back from my friend's funeral, another friend was talking to me about it, and he asked if I believed I would see Ryan again. And I said, yes, I believe I will. And I asked him, what do you believe? And he said, well, I'm not sure what I believe. He said that he's still a Christian, but he's not sure if he believes in the resurrection. You know, the resurrection of believers is a really important doctrine. It's, an, it's essential to our faith. Your salvation is not complete until the resurrection happens. I want you to think about that. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God declared you righteous. You were saved for all eternity. You were delivered from the penalty of sin. That's what we call justification. But God didn't immediately take you into his presence. He left you here in this life, in this body, struggling to serve him and know him and obey him. And in this life, day by day, 
You're being delivered from the power of sin. God is making you more holy, making you more like his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we call sanctification. But your salvation isn't complete in this life, and it will not be complete when you die, because there comes a day when Christ will come back and raise your mortal body into a new and glorious body, in, in which you will be able to go in the kingdom he has prepared. That's called glorification. That's when you'll be delivered from the very presence of sin. That hasn't happened yet. Your salvation is not complete until that happens. Think about that. Paul has been with Christ for almost 2,000 years, and his salvation isn't complete. Peter has been with the Lord for nearly 2,000 years, and he's still waiting for the day Christ comes back. My friend Ryan has been with the Lord for two weeks, and he hasn't gotten into the coming kingdom of God yet. The job isn't finished because he still needs a resurrected body. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is telling the believers, don't think that when the Lord comes back, you're going to receive the hope of the resurrection before the people who have died and have been waiting for it for thousands of years. You won't go before them, and the Lord will not forget a single one of them. So how do we get into the resurrection? Luke, or the passage that we read this morning, talks about being counted worthy to partake in the resurrection. In John chapter 11, Jesus said, he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? None of us will get into the resurrection because we are good people. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. God cannot have fellowship with sinners. He can't accept them into his presence. He cannot be their God and they cannot be his people. God must, must, must punish sin. But the good news of the gospel is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Christ lived in our place. Christ died in our place. Christ was buried and rose again on the third day. He's what's called the first fruits of the resurrection. The good news of the gospel is that you may be counted worthy to be part of the resurrection, not because you're a good enough person, but because Christ was good enough for you. Because he stood in your place in life and death so that if you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And when he comes, you will be raised up in the resurrection of believers to be with the Lord forever. God who started his good work in you will bring it to completion and it will happen at the resurrection. Let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his perfect work, which guarantees to us the hope of the resurrection. Um, would you use this passage of scripture to bring hope and encouragement to my brothers and sisters this morning? If there be any among us who does not know Christ, um, would you convict of sin and generate faith and repentance in their heart that they might know Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.